Erev Tov, good evening. We are together on page, thank you, Devar Miriam, 17 of the Roman rules, 15. I said someone wrote it, I don't know who it was. 15 in the PDF. And we're up to the next section of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's introduction, which is part of a much longer conversation that he's having with us. Tonight's show is titled, Are We Really All the Same? And we're going to focus for the next couple of shiurim on major differences in practice between Sephardim and Ashkenazim and answer this question, are we really all the same? I have to tell you that I hesitate for two reasons. The first is I don't like to highlight differences between people in general. And the only reason why I'm willing to talk about differences is because the whole purpose of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's essay is unity. So if we're going to discuss differences for the sake of unity, I'm willing to have the conversation. I was once sitting with Rav Yaakov Peretz, Shalav Miguel, Mori Harav, in a taxi. And the taxi driver, it was a little bit of a drive, the taxi driver, who was very clearly Moroccan, and very clearly understood from Harav Peretz's accent that he was as well, he turns to Harav Peretz, says, Shalom Lechem, what's your name? Harav Peretz answers. He said, where are you from? He says, Yerushanayim. And then he answers, the, asks the question that everybody asks. Where are you from, from? You know that question? People don't, don't really want to know where you're from. Where are you from, from? Meaning, where did you come from before Yerushalayim? And Harapetz looks at him and he said, Lemay nafkamina, which is a Talmudic term saying, what difference does it make? And then proceeded to explain to the taxi driver that we're all living in Eretz Israel. It doesn't really make a difference where I'm from or where you're from. The point is that we're here together today. But if we're going to discuss differences, Harapelitz's rule, whenever we speak about all the different camps in the Jewish community, to try as much as possible to mention the positive there. The second, I have a problem with pacing. So those of you who've been with me and my shiul for a long time, it's not a real problem. But it's, uh, I like to move, I don't mind taking forever to study something as long as we study it well. And that means that when I see a list of 51 things that are different between Sephardim and Ashkenazim, my, I don't know if it's the Yetzirah, but my inclination is to spend 51 weeks and take each one of these things apart and take apart every difference. Why we do this? Why the Bavli? Why the Yerushalmi? Rambam and the Rif and the Rosh? And to go with you through Min Hagim and in this country and that country. And I understand that there's value in giving a 51-week course on Min Hagim. I just don't know that that's the course that you signed up for. And more than that, more than that, I'm concerned that if we spend 51 weeks discussing these 51 examples, that we will lose entirely the message that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is trying to share with us. So my proposal is as follows. I won't spend 51 weeks. I'm also not going to do this so superficially. I would like to see how long it takes us to get through this list. And if that means we do 10 or 15 things today and 12 next week, and that's what I'll do until we finish, B'lat Hashem, the 51 items on the list. Isn't it acceptable to you? Yana, okay. Chavar, those of you who have your cameras on, I really appreciate it. Those of you who don't, I would really appreciate them being on unless you can't, and I totally understand if you can't. Says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin in the middle of page 17 or 15. Po Atzayin, here I'm going to point out there's two Edot. Edot and Ashkenazim. We don't call ourselves really in history Edot HaMizrach. This seems to happen to us later in our history, but the term Mizrahi Jews that is used, you know, really, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not an expert in all the ethnic politics that go on, racial politics. There are different people who are experts in these terms. For me, we always Sephardim and Ashkenazim. They're both vague terms. They're both inaccurate. Like any other term you're going to use, not all Ashkenazi Jews are from Germany. Not all Sephardic Jews are from Spain. We know this already. It seems though that this term Mizrahim is used in a few ways. One, especially in the early years of the state of Israel, Mizrahim was intended to lump a bunch of people who were non-European in the same category. And that meant that, ironically, even if you were Sephardic, which is really part of Europe, and you were from Spain, that you might be considered an Easterner because of your affiliation with a group that is not Ashkenazi. Second, this term has been used, and I don't know for how long, 
to separate the Sephardic community between some type of West and East. And I understand that in the United Kingdom, this is a, a touchy subject, so I'm, I'm treading lightly over here. But for those who have been in my shiurim in the past, Sephardim has nothing to do with one's ethnicity. I can't say nothing. It definitely is a term that, that connotes some type of ethnicity. But Sephardim is about a philosophy that you affiliate yourself with. You would, if someone tells you, you know, I'm Chabad, you don't assume that he was born in the town of Lubavitch in Russia. You assume that this Jew, regardless of where they come from, affiliates themselves with a certain worldview, a certain philosophy. When someone tells you, you know, I'm Breslev, I go to Uman for Rosh Hashanah, you don't assume that they actually come from a place called Uman. You know how many, Uman has, I don't know, how many people live in Uman? Nobody, how many people live in Uman? So how, probably the Jews that come to Uman are more than the people who ever lived in Uman in Uman's history. You don't assume that when they say that, that means they come from a little village somewhere. You assume they're part of a philosophy that by Sephardim, somehow we've shut down this conversation. Where, where is Sephardim? It means uh, ethnicity, where we come from, and that's, that's a mistake. It's a mistake because it's not true. It's a mistake because it also keeps certain people away from this form of Judaism that is crucial to, in my opinion, of course, that is crucial to developing one's relationship with the Kadosh Baruch Hu and the Torah of the Jewish people. From the day that we founded our Kihila, we have never used the term Sephardi, ever. We're not a Sephardic synagogue, we're not... In fact, the only time I use the term Sephardi is when people try to make us Orthodox. When we're Orthodox, then I become a Sephardi, but that's the only time. Because you know how many people in my Kihila are not ethnically Sephardi? Who cares? Who cares? When we started our Bet Adin in Los Angeles, the question was, well, you guys should call yourselves the Sephardic Betadin. My response? When the other Betadin titles themselves the Ashkenazi Betadin, I will write the Sephardic Betadin. But when it says Betadin, and Betadin means normal, and then Sephardic means abnormal, when the day school doesn't call itself the Ashkenazi day school, so why should I call it a Sephardic day school? We're Jews with a unique philosophy, but it's accessible to everybody. When my wife, I'll tell you a story. I'm in a storytelling mood. When my wife came to San Diego, to, we had met in Israel. I had then taken a job to be a rabbi in San Diego in a different community at the time. And it was a Sephardic synagogue on top of an Ashkenazi synagogue. And my wife came for Shabbat, and it was, you know, kind of, it was a shidduch, so not everybody knew that we were dating each other. We weren't actually in a relationship per se. And at least not publicly for the world to know. And my wife, who had come, so the community for Shabbat went upstairs to go pray with the Sephardim, obviously to pray with our Kihilan. And someone stopped her on the staircase and said, excuse me, are you Sephardic? You don't belong upstairs. You, don't need, you should come here. And my wife gave them a piece of her mind that just because she looks a certain way doesn't mean she doesn't want to pray up there. And that's when she became the Rabbanit of our community. But this attitude of we are exclusively one thing and therefore you're not welcome here, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. And so, yeah, I don't even know where I was going with this idea here. Sefaradim, the term Sefaradim. It's not perfect, but all these other terms that are meant to break up the Sephardic community into fragments, especially when it comes to East and West. Chacham Fa'ur has a very interesting footnote. Chacham Fa'ur in his book, Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan, Ha'ishu Mishnato, printed in the 60s, about Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan. He tracks at which point Sephardim stop being Western, meaning part of Spain, Portugal, civilized culture, and when Sephardim are forced into being Easterners, and that this is part of a shift that happens across the world, to divide the world between East and West, West being modern and cultured and educated, and East being primitive and backwards and whatever else might be. Now, this is obviously not a true uh, differentiation, but this is the way that much of the world, in the Western world, as in the Eastern world, and there's a certain denigration of the East when discussing the East. The East is not culture. The East is not educated. It doesn't make a difference that they have their own culture. The East has its own educational standards. The East has its own, doesn't make a difference, but the East is lower than us in the West. And then this became applied to Jews. And then worse today, I see that inside of the Jewish community, especially in the Sevaradim, there's this divide and I, I struggle with it. What can I tell you? I can't tell you it doesn't exist. I can tell that I don't want it to exist. That's what I can say. So right now, I'm just breaking up the Jewish people into Sephardim and Ashkenazim. Is it perfect? No, but let's do it. Hen b'min hagei 
Whether it has to do with the minhagim, the customs of the community, the synagogue. So there are practical differences between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim as to how the Better Knesset works, how it operates, how you pray, all the customs that happen there. Piyutim, there are different songs that are sung in different communities. I think this is important. It's a little different than the Bera Knesset per se. I don't know what a Sephardic Ni'ilah would sound like if it didn't start with El Noah Alina. That tune, it can be different tunes in different communities, so don't get stuck on there. But We hear this tune and all of a sudden our mind gets into Yom Kippur mode. Achot Ketana, Moroccan, Syrian, Spanish, Portuguese, whatever you're going to do. That tune gets you into Roshana. For the Ashkenazi soul, I think that a person who's been going for years and years and years to an Ashkenazi synagogue, what is the high holiday without Untane Tokev? Regardless of the historical accuracy of that song. What is it without the ten martyrs? What is it without certain piyutim that are key piyutim, but we don't even have them in our sidu? Those are differences. Are they important differences? Nobody said they're important, but they exist. Nisuim, weddings, we do those things differently. Shabbat v'yom tov, differences in our observance of Shabbat and holidays. Nichum avelim, we should never know. But when it comes to comforting mourners and the like, there are differences. Isur v'heter, I wonder what waited so long for this one, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. Isur v'heter, the laws of kashrut. There are minor differences between Sevaratim and Ashkenazim when it comes to the laws of kashrut. I know a little bit about that. Uvichlal ikarei dinim v'halachot kvuot. But even in basic halachot that are established, shenit yazdu al pi asafrut atalmudit ugdolei aposkim, and the halachic systems both of Sephardim and Ashkenazim, which are both based off of the Talmud, they're both based off of the writings of the giants of the poskim, v'im kozeh, and nonetheless, despite the fact that our halachic systems are based off of the same works, they still don't see eye to eye with each other. They're still not equal to each other. I mean, there are differences throughout life, says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, where Sephardim and Ashkenazim simply do things differently. Says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, I so much desired to gather together all of the differences. He said, I see how difficult it is for me to do it because it would need its own book. It would need to be its own work. It couldn't be the introduction to the Ketr Shentov. And the time does not allow me, time does not permit me to start a new book like this. Whether, because I don't have time, because of the troubles in my life, the yoke that has been put on my neck, the public affairs that I'm involved in. Because I lecture every day in Ohel Moshev Yehudit. I believe this is Moses Montefiore College. More, do you want to help me out here? What's it called today? No, okay, never mind. And I ask the readers for forgiveness if I even list these differences out of order, most likely out of order of the Shulchan Aruch, meaning it's going to be all over the place. He gathered 51 examples, but they're not all the examples that there are. And this is what I'm offering with the help of my God. So there are many more differences than 51, but these 51 are going to be an example for us about the differences between all of them. The first, this one should come as no surprise. En ha-sefaradim, he uses Samech for Sefaradi and Aleph for Ashkenazim. So he's never going to spell out those words, or not so much. En ha-sefaradim ashkenazim mishtavim benosach atefilot. The Sefaradim and the Ashkenazim have different nuschaot in different versions of the Sidur from which they pray. Now, I think everyone knew this, and there's more than just Sephardic and Ashkenazi. Today you have Blianara in the Ashkenazi world, a number of different types of Sidurim. There's Ashkenaz, there's Sfarad, which is not Sephardic. 
there's a Hasidic Sidur, there's a Chabad Sidur, there's a German Sidur, there's a, all kinds of different Sidurim that exist. By the Sephardim, the same thing. Yeah, so the Sephardim, you have perhaps the East and the West Sephardim, you have those who are a little more Kabbalistically influenced, those who are less. You have a Moroccan Sidur and a Syrian Sidur, and a, all of these Sidurim are a little bit different from each other. You have a Yemenite Sidur, which is a completely different playing field. Uh, than other, depending which Yemenites are they, Shami Yemenites are they, Baladi Yemenites, which Yemenites are they from? All of those are different Sidurim. But he writes here in the footnote. If look in footnote forty-four. Nosach atefilah Sfaradim, the version of tefilah of Sfaradim, nishlach lahem was sent to the Sfaradim al edayir of Amram Gaon. Rabbeinu Amram Gaon, one of the Gaonim. וזה היה כאשר שלח רבנה יצחק, אחד מגאוני ספרד, את בנו רבי יעקב. This happened when רבנו יצחק, one of the גאונים of ספרד, sent his son, רבי יעקב, לרבי עמרם גאון, ועשרה או עשרים זהובים בידון, he brought with him 10 or 20 gold coins in his hand, לתת לו בעד שכר הסופר להתיק מהסידור. He went not to pay רבי עמרם גאון for the סידור. But he went to pay for the expense of having a person. There's no photocopy machine. There's no file you could take and put in your computer. They had to write it. If I wanted a sidu from you, I had to hire somebody who would copy over the sidu from one book onto a blank book. He gives you a source here. V'nosach sidu Ashkenaz, ba'lahem al-edei rabbeinu simcha mivitri, hanikra machzor vitri. And Nosach Ashkenaz came to the Ashkenazim from Rabbeinu Simcha of Vitri. It's called the Machzor Vitri. But if I am not mistaken, Machzor Vitri is a student of... Who? I believe of Rashi. You can check me on that, but if I'm not mistaken, there's a connection there to the camp of Rashi, but I don't know. Now there's a fantastical history, I say history lightly, of the differences between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Sidurim found in the back of the book Noam Elimelech. Noam Elimelech is a Hasidic work of Elimelech of Lezhensk. And in the back of that work, there's, you know, the name is eluding me now, the Rebbeinit wants to help me look it up. Sefer Shoshanim, Likut Shoshanim, something about a rose, a flower, something, something there in the back. Perach Shoshanim, I don't remember exactly what it is. And over there, he has some idea that obviously is trying to explain why the Sephardic Sidur is so in line with Kabbalah and Ashkenazi Sidur is not. And he gives some answer about Marana Bet Yosef being worthy of a Sephardic Kabbalistic Sidur and the Ramah feeling that the Ashkenazim were not worthy of such a Sidur. And because of that, the Hasidim took the Kabbalistic Sidur of the Sephardim but made it work for something historical it's not. But it's very interesting to see what his opinion was. And really, I'm assuming his purpose is to try to explain why the Hasidim abandoned the Ashkenazi Sidur for the, in favor of whatever Sephardic Sidur they put together. Are you familiar with Nosach Sefarad? Not the Sephardic one. Sefarad, the Hasidim. Anybody here familiar with this Nosach? Yeah? Um, anybody pray this Nosach? In school, that was the Nosach used? Yeah. Okay. And what do you pray at home? Um, Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz. What are any differences you notice between Sefarad and Ashkenaz? Anything that stuck out to you? Um, yeah, there's some stuff that was like the wrong way around. And um, they add an extra word. Well, not the wrong way, but just a different uh, dif- way. Very good. Okay. So that, that was some things that are different. They're, they're in different orders or extra words added here and there. As somebody who grew up in a Sephardic home, praying Sephardic, uh, and then going to a Chabad synagogue, praying their Nosach Ha'ari, according to the first Lubavitch Rebbe, and then going to a day school that prayed Nosach Ashkenaz, and later in life running through some places Nosach Sefarad, I can tell you what is unique about Nosach Sefarad is that it really feels, to someone who's familiar with the Nuschaot, Nosach Ashkenaz flows. It flows exactly like an Ashkenazi Sidur would flow. The Sephardic Sidur, it flows like a Sephardic Sidur would flow. Uh, Nosach Sefarad, it flows like, um, like if you're driving an off-road vehicle on a bumpy road and things are flying around all over the place. Chacham uh, Yosef refers to Nosach Sefarad as Nusach Ashkenaz HaMeshubash. The messed up Nusach Ashkenaz. That's how he calls it. 
And the reason is there are words there that clearly don't belong or they're repetitive. They're, they're using two different words. One that is found in the original Nusach Ashkenaz and one that is added from the Arizal's Kavanot or things that are in different orders. Uh, you know, like uh, an example. In Sephardic Sidur, Shema Kuleinu, Adonai Eloheinu, Avarachaman, Chus Varchem Aleinu. We say, Shema Hashem, hear our voice. Avarachaman. In the Sephardic, the Hasidic version of this, it says, Avarachaman, Shema Kuleinu. Now we know that the blessing starts with the word Shema Kulenu, and we know that the Arizal intended for the words Havar Chaman to happen after Shema Kulenu. But for whatever reason, whoever put together that Sidu, put it in that direction. There are some Hasidim who have adjusted that, and they've flipped the order around. But there are, you can tell that a, a man-made edition of the Sidur is what's in front of you, and that it has been tampered by people who maybe didn't always understand, or, or maybe they did, but they did it differently than how anybody else would. That's all. I, I said my piece. Back in the day, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, Allah Shalom, was the chief rabbi of the Israeli army. And he wanted in the Israeli army, listen, you can't have an Ashkenazi minyan, and a Sephardic minyan, and a Hasidic minyan, and a Yemeni minyan. Like in the army, you have to figure out what you guys are doing. There's, sometimes there's barely a few soldiers on the base for a minyan. What are you going to do? And so he suggested what he called Nosach Achid, the united Nosach, which is really just Nosach Sefarad with a new label on it. But it didn't work. For the Ashkenazim, it didn't work because it had extra words that don't belong there. For the Sephardim, it didn't work because it was missing. and It was a completely different order than what they were used to. And how many Hasidim were drafted to the Israeli army that it would work for them? So really what happened is even though the Sidur was standard issue, I'm not sure that it's really used anymore at all. I'm not sure. You'd have to ask. It could be my friend, Rabbi Josh Gerstein, is the rabbi of Nachal Haradi. I wonder what they use in his unit. The second, Gam benosach ha-piyutim enamishtavim. So the second difference that Rabbi Shem Dovgagin says is when it comes to the piyutim, the songs in the Sidu, they're not the same. So if you look at footnote 45, Sefaradim kiblu alehem piyutei tefilotam. The Sefaradim accepted into their Sidurim the piyutim, the songs, the poems of Givirol. Who is Givirol? What's his name? Rabbi Shalomo Evan Gavirol. He was one of the giant poets of Spain. He wrote a beautiful work called Mifchar Peninim. By the way, it was translated in London in the early 1900s. You can get a copy with Hebrew and English, though the English is obviously an older English. There are newer editions that are only in Hebrew. Mifchar Peninim is a beautiful book, almost like Perkavot, of teachings, of sayings, of wisdom that Rabbi Shalomo Evan Gavirol is busy teaching us. One word of advice there that has always stuck out to me, and I, I share it almost every time I mention his name. Rabbi Shalom Evan Givirol asks, what is the best type of friend to have? How do you determine what character trait do you find in a friend that you know this person should be your friend? And he suggests the best character trait in a friend is that when your friend becomes your enemy, they will not betray your secrets to anyone else. That's the best friend you should look for. The type of friend that when they become your enemy, they will not betray your secrets. I think this is very wise words of advice. You share things with people when you're close, when you're friends. How many times couples that were together and today they're not, and, and the things they share with people. I mean, you come to me as a rabbi to share with me things, but you're slinging mud at a person. You're sharing with me secrets that this person trusted with you. They confided in you in the most intimate of times and, and you feel comfortable just throwing it at me. That's a betrayal of a friendship. Today you're not friends, but when you become my enemy, I know that your lips are still going to be sealed. This is an important midah. Rabbi Huda Halavi. Rabbi Huda Halavi, which, which book? We studied it here. The Kuzari, very good. We studied it here for many years. It's a mistake. It's a mistake that in Jewish schools, Kuzari is not taught from the beginning until the end. This book is one of the most important works that we have. I think the Gaon of Vilna said about the Kuzari, but I'm bringing for you from an unlikely camp, that kol emunat Israel talubo, all of the faith of the Jewish people is built into the Kuzari. Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra, Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra is not Rabbi Abraham ben Ezra. Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra has a 
tragic life. He wanted to marry his niece of his older brother, and it didn't work out because the older brother married off his daughter to a different brother. So the niece ended up marrying an uncle anyways. Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra spent the rest of his life heartbroken that he wasn't able to marry the love of his life. His songs are heartbreaking, heart-wrenching. Rabbi Moshe David Gaon, in his book, Yudea Mizrach Be'aretz Yisrael, writes about Rabbi Moshe David Gaon that he was, in quality, one of the most superior poets of Sepharad, more than anyone else that came before him. And there are further chachamim that we have their songs in our sidur. Ashkenazim received theirs from Rabbi Eliezer Kalir. The Kalir, there are some people who want to say this is the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. I don't know what to tell you who was the Kalir exactly. Kalir might mean the cake maker, something to do with his profession. If you look here in Kohelet, Rabbi Abraham ben Ezra's commentary on the fifth chapter of Kohelet, you will find a scathing rebuke of all of the poems of the Kalir that are found in the Ashkenazi Sidurim today. Rabbi Avraham ben Ezra had, he didn't mince words. It's a rebuke is very, very harsh. I'm not going to say cruel, but very harsh. And even harsher on the people that are still singing those piyotim. I recommend if you have time and you have the Hebrew skills to look up the Ibn Ezra in the original. That's Kohelet chapter 5 in the first pasuk. Uvesov Machzor Vitri says Rabbi Shemdok Green at the end of Machzor Vitri, Matzati Harbe mi Piyutei Sevarad, Shashkenazim Noagim Noam. I found in the back of the Machzor Vitri many of these Sephardic Piyutim that it seems like the Ashkenazim used to say them, and for whatever reason they don't say them anymore. So we mentioned so far uh, the Nosach of the Tifina and the Piyutim. Maybe tell me why the Piyutim are separate from the Nosach of the Tifina. Why today? I'm pretty sure that if you would ask what's the difference between Svaradim Ashkenazim and their Sidu, people would say Piyutim. Why is he treating these two things differently? That's not a trick question, it's one you can answer. Yeah, very good. That's uh, that's the answer that I would give. You have the the nosach the tefillah. That's the, skeleton is a word. It's the it's the body of the tefillah, and then you have all of these piyutim that have been added to it over the years. Those piyutim are not the main part of the tefillah. They're parts of the tefillah that were added in later. That's going to be a different part of what separates Valdim and Shkenazim, where in tefillah you're allowed to insert the piyutim. We'll get there. On the top of page 18 in the Roman numerals. Gimel. And this is so out of order, so that I have no idea why Rabbi Shem Tov Regin lists things in this order, but they are as they are. Sefaradim neorim kol halayla, bezayin shel Pesach v'hoshan araba. The Sefaradim are awake the whole night on the 7th of Pesach and on Hoshan Araba. And they blow the shofar when they do the seven hakafot in the morning of those holidays. And this is not a minhag ashkenaz. So the ashkenazim don't do this at all. Look at footnote 46. Minhag sefarad The custom of the sefaradim came to them from the days of the Arizal. Ayen b'shara kavanot, look in the shara kavanot written by Rabbi Chaim Vital, over Pri Etz Chaim as well. Tamat kiot, why we blow the shofar, mipnei shemarbin bo tachamlin v'sedichot, because it's a day where they add all kinds of supplication prayers. Aval ha-sefaradim be'eretz Yisrael en tokin, the sefaradim in the land of Israel do not blow the shofar. Rel ha-rav pri ha-adama, look in the writings of the rav pri ha-adama, one of our chachamim. In the Sephardim of London and Amsterdam, they blow the shofar. Is anyone here actively part of a Spanish-Portuguese kihila that could tell me if this is the minhag on the ground today? 
Blowing the shofar in the morning of uh, the seventh of Pesach and Hoshana Rabbah. Some kind of takafot that happened with the blowing of the shofar. I know that by the Hasidic, at least I come from, they do that on Hoshana Rabbah, but not on Pesach. Not on Pesach, okay. Mord, what about? Oh, we do, do Hoshana Rabbah, not, not Pesach. Not on Pesach either. Okay, but you but uh, more the blowing of the shofar happens on Rosh Hashanah. As, as far as we're aware, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the, right. Okay. So this is really so this is something that still is around. By the way, it could be why none of you are familiar with the seventh of Pesach. It's very simple. I mean, it's not so simple actually. I recall seeing in one of the writings of Chachamim Sfarad that the seventh of Pesach, the idea of staying up all night on the seventh of Pesach, is an early Sabbathian. Custom. So this comes from not from the Arizal. It's not found in the writings of the Arizal. It's found in the writings of Shabtai Tzvi. A proof to that, if I recall correctly, a proof to that is that according to the Arizal, um, one of the nights in which a husband and wife are supposed to be together is the seventh night of Pesach. And so because of that, we know that it couldn't be from the Arizal that he would suggest that all the men go to the Beit Knesset and stay up on the seventh night of Pesach. There's a book the Savaradim have, uh, we don't have it on our I think it's called. It has all the things you say when you stay up on Shavuot, when you stay up on Oshana Rabbah. And in the newer editions of this book, the seventh of Pesach is written in tiny letters. Meaning, it's there because they didn't want not to print it, but it's really there and nobody uses it. The difference number four. By the Sefaradim, Hachatan v'akala yoshvim tachat achupa kol shiva yemei achupa by the Sevaradim, the Chatan and Kala sit under the Chupa for all seven days of Sheva Barachot, and by the Ashkenazim, that is not the case. Is anybody here familiar with the Sephardic community in which the Chatan and Kala sit under the Chupa for seven days? What does, what does that mean, sit so it can mean two things. It can either mean they stay at the place where the chuppah is, that's where they are, or that the chuppah comes with them to the places they go, perhaps. Uh, that it comes with them from house to house, and that's where they are. Is anybody familiar with such a minhag? So I've never seen it, but I have some thoughts. Look at footnote 48. No, Mechina, 47. Semech Laminhag Sefarad, not exactly a source, but a uh, uh, help, meaning a, a vague reference to the, maybe a possible origin of the Minhag of Sefarad, Humay Rushalmi, is from the Talmud Yerushalmi, Heviyo Harada, Rabbi David Abu Draham, Abu Draham. Vayena Bet Yosef, Ibn Ha'ezer, Mashakadab Bashem Achot Chaim. And look in the Bet Yosef, Ibn Ha'ezer, in chapter 61, where he writes, in the name of the Ochot Chaim. Now this actual minhag, I can't tell you that I've seen, but I t- will tell you something. Somebody help me out here. Has anyone ever been with some gung-ho Sephardim, preferably of the Rabbi Yovari Yosef variety, Arab Shalom, when it comes to Sheva Berachot and whether or not you can say Sheva Berachot in a house that doesn't belong to the Chatan? Anyone familiar with the Machloket I'm talking about? This is much more common in Israel than I've seen outside of Israel. Have Benji ever seen anything over there that that uh, differences between Sevaradim and Ashkenazim about Sheva Brachot? I can't say I have. Okay, so this. Ha- I have. I'm not into that many Sevaradim Sheva Brachot. Okay, we have to get you invited, Benji. We have to get you invited. So <laughs> there is Maran tells us in Shulchan Aruch that we're allowed to make the blessings of Sheva Brachot. Let's talk. Let's back up. Sheva Brachot. What are the Sheva Berachot? When do we first say them? Okay, very good. They're in the When do we first say the Sheva Berachot with a couple? At the Chupa. We then say again Sheva Berachot. In a different order. In a, a little, okay, by the Berkat Amazon of the Sheva Berachot. And then we do. Every night afterwards, for seven days, or every afternoon, whatever they do, uh, they do Sheva uh, Brachot in different people's houses. That seems to be the custom nowadays. Everyone goes to other people's houses, they do Sheva Brachot, and, and that happens for seven days, and Shalom and Israel. 
Does one have an obligation? None of the chupa. Talk to me about, let's say someone gets married on Sunday. So now, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, can they go take a vacation to the Bahamas? The, or do they have to stay in town for the Sheva Brachot? Is there an obligation to do a Sheva Brachot? I don't hear, Benji, I heard you, but I don't hear. Okay, Sarah says no. Pam uh, is shaking her head no. Benji, what did you say? Yeah, I said that, that very good. So only if the Chatan and Kala are eating a meal where there is a minyan, then they say Shev Brachot. But they don't have to say Shev There's no obligation here. Somebody, I once had a situation where a couple wanted to take a honeymoon after their wedding, and they no, you have to stay Shev Brachot. They don't want to stay. Whatever it was, they had work coming. There was only time this year. They were going to get seven days off. They wanted to leave town. Okay. Uh, there already, it's not a matter of halakha, it's a matter of politics between family members, and I can't get involved. But, Sheva Brachot are a thing you do only when you have a situation which works for Sheva Brachot. If you're with the same people all the time for Sheva Brachot, you cannot do Sheva Brachot every day, because you need a new person or people uh, at the Sheva Brachot, and maybe on Shabbat those laws are a little bit different, but that's the way this works. There are also certain couples that get married that are not required to do Sheva Brachot at all. Uh, if a person marries their divorcee, so then the Shevet Rechot might be one day, might be three days, depending on uh, how you look at the poskim over there. Maran says you're not allowed to recite the Shevet Rechot unless you are in the home of the Chatan. So it's not just ten people, it's not just uh, ten men, it's not just uh, new faces, it has to be the home of the Chatan. Just for the record, I just mentioned now ten men. I find it highly unusual that in so many places, in the Orthodox community today, only the Chatan is present for the Sheva Brachot. What do you say? We rejoice the groom with the bride. But the bride is in a different room. She's behind a mechitza. She's in another building. I know that she's not even listening. She's not, she's, all the men gather in for Sheva Brachot and where's the wife? She's nowhere to be found. What kind of Sheva Brachot doesn't have the Kala at the Sheva Brachot? When I got married, so I knew it was going to be a problem. You know, I married the family of Chassidim. With, I told my wife, maybe we'll only have Mechitza on the dancing. She's like, listen, you can do whatever you want. My parents won't come unless it's going to be a certain way. Fine, so we did it that certain way. But I had one request. That was a Sheva Brachot. I want to sit with my wife. I want to sit with my wife. And everything worked out until Shabbat Sheva Brachot. Shabbat Sheva Brachot, we come. And I was in one room and they put my wife in a different room. A different room, meaning in a different room. So men did Kiddush here, the woman in a different room. And I was obnoxious a little bit. I don't know if I today would have been so obnoxious, but my wife, I would have listened to her. I didn't listen to her. By Kiddush and by Sheva Brachot, I wanted my wife to be in the room so she should hear them. More than that, I couldn't fight for. But, but that's what I asked for. Maran says that if you're not in the home of the Chatan, you cannot recite Sheva Brachot. You can only recite Hagevin and uh, one, of the brachot, one of the other Brachot of the Sheva Brachot. Have you ever seen somebody do Sheva Brachot and not recite all the Sheva Brachot? Probably not. My assumption is you've done the Sheva Brachot hopping around in different places. And this becomes a serious problem for Sephardim who are literally understanding Maran. That should be myself in that category. And so I'm here to explain a little bit of Amin Hag, how things work a little differently than, uh, than how other people might see it. If I'm anyways talking about Sheva Brachot, before I say anything, Sheva Brachot are not seven separate blessings. What do I mean they're not seven separate blessings? When you see the Sheva Brachot, how many blessings are there? How do you know if something is a separate blessing versus an independent blessing? What does an independent blessing look like? You say Baruch Hashem at the end. An independent blessing also has Baruch Hashem in the beginning. So imagine you say Asher Yatzah, right? Baruch Hashem, Asher Yatzah, Tadam Chumat, right? And then you end off Baruch Hashem again. Now, oftentimes in the morning, a person will say this blessing of and only at the end of that blessing is there Baruch Hashem, right? This blessing is not an independent blessing. It is a blessing, it's a blessing that is attached to the one that comes before it. So give me an example of the brachot, of the sheva brachot, that are not independent. They don't start with the words, Baruch Hashem. 
Off the top of your head, those of you who know some Shavar Brachot, it doesn't have to be in order. Sameach Tesameach, Reim Ahuvim, does that start with Baruch Hashem? No. What else? Shos Tasis, V'tagel Akara, doesn't start with Baruch Hashem. Those Brachot cannot be recited by separate individuals. Those Brachot come together as a package. They must be said together. The original Minhag in Sefarad, in Ashkenaz, and everywhere in the world, is that one person said all the Shavar Brachot. You start with Bore Pri HaGefen, and you end with the last, the seven, what they call it, Bracha Achrita, they call it the one they sing, Asher Bara, Son One person recites all the Shavu Barachot. It doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense, not in the realm of Halakha, that the seven blessings are split up between seven different people. I saw Rav Moshe Feinstein, I think it was him, he said you can split it up between four people. If you break up the independent blessings and the ones that are Barachot, Asamuchot, Achavatan, then you could, you could do it that way. The bottom line is by Haraperetz as much as possible. When we can, we give all of the Sheva Brachot to one person. Everybody should, to one person. The fact the world doesn't do that, you can justify any minhag in the world. But Sheva Brachot should be recited by one person. So, that's it. So how do you get around Maran's problem with reciting Sheva Brachot in the house that doesn't belong to the Khatan? Tell me in the olden days where the Chatan and Kala got married. Where did they get married? Not at a wedding hall. In the house. In the house. Yeah, in the house. The backyard of a house, the compound, a few families living together. The Chatan and Kala have a chuppah. They go to a yichud room, even Zavaradim. What does it mean, yichud room? They go to their, their apartment, their bedroom, their whatever it is that's over there. It could be in the compound. And then they come out and they have a celebration in the courtyard. So it could be five or six families all related living in the same courtyard. But in the middle, they had a chuppah and a wedding. And the chatan and step out for a little bit and come back. That was the wedding, once upon a time. Later, you develop in Hagim, get married in a synagogue, get married outside, under the stars, whatever. Everyone has different things. Those happen later. So where do you celebrate the wedding? In the house of the Chatan. Now you come to say Sheva Brachot. So where are you the second day? In the house of the Chatan. You do Sheva Brachot on the third day, where are you? In the house of the Chatan. Once you uproot the Chatan from his home, it's no longer the house of the Chatan. You're not obligated in Sheva Brachot. So Chatan and Kala are there, fine, but you don't say all Sheva Brachot. That's why Maran says you don't recite all the Sheva Brachot. Now, that is all based beautifully on a Rambam. The Rambam says that a wise person first gets a job, then builds a house, buys a house, and then he gets married. And a stupid person first gets married, then finds a job, then builds a house. If, I'm not going to ask, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but you can ask myself, how many of us own our own homes? And how many of us owned our own homes before we got married? In today's, more don't answer that you got some $5 billion Yerusha, and because of that you bought yourself three mansions. And the, no, okay, it wasn't. <laughs> Meaning, the, the order today is different for whatever reason, but it's different. It, it could be that building a, a shack with mud and some sticks was easier to do, and today you have to find a loan and mortgages and payments. Okay, I'm willing to accept that. But in today's world, in today's world, the Chadan Kala most likely don't own their home. So they rent a home. So let's say you're in Yerushalayim. I'm sure we've all been in Yerushalayim. You're in Yerushalayim and the Chatan Kala, their parents paid for a wedding and some 20-year-old couple. And then where's their home? Where do they live? Oh, you're talking about a guy that comes from a good yeshiva. And a, of course, that's part of the, the criminal act of getting married in Israel. Is the, but, so let's say they're not as bad, they're not living with the parents. Even I didn't do that to you. Yeah, but they find them some basement apartment and underneath some building, a half a bedroom, whatever it is. Over that, that, till they figure out their life, till they have kids, till whatever else. You think this Chatan and Kala, the day after their wedding, are happy with you and your 10 people, 20 people coming to crash their apartment basement? They don't even have real furniture, the couch is missing a leg, the chairs are broken, the table is scratched. You think they're happy with you coming to live with them over there? They're not happy. So Peretz's attitude is everywhere the Chatan and Kala go, that they set up a home for the Chatan and Kala today. Today, Shev Brachot, here, this is the home of the Chatan and Kala. Ah, how do you justify with Maran, and then they Maran? So there's, I think the Taz, by the way, is the one who says this. There's a custom that was in Morocco. In Morocco, it's a beautiful minhag. If we could do it today, I would recommend doing it today. 
they had this special bench. They called it a talamon. Maybe my mother knows this better than me. A talamon is like, imagine a sofa, like a couch of sorts, and it has on top of it a canopy. You've probably seen this in movies, you know, some kind of Arabian type movie. It's a beautiful couch with a canopy on top. And this was at the wedding. That's the chupa kivyechol. This moved with them, and every home they went to, they brought the special couch to the first night, to the second night, to the third night. And that means that no matter where the Chazan and Kala were, their home, their chupa was traveling with them wherever they went. This is not a minhag that we see anymore. The world is either violating Malan or relying on the Taz. But this idea, perhaps, perhaps, could be this concept of a talamon that was in the Sephardic communities of certain places, moving from home to home so the Chatan and Kala could say, this is our home and you are guests at our home. Let's look at number five. Sephardim omarim halel bivracha bishnedlot pesach arishonim bivet akneset. Sephardim recite halel with a blessing in the Bet Knesset on the first two nights of Pesach. That's obviously if you're living outside of Israel. Inside of Israel, it's only on the first night. Vashkenazim and Nagim Ken. And Ashkenazim don't have this custom. If you look in footnote 48, look what I wrote on this minhag in the Ketar Shem Tov. minhag. Sefarad, ayen Yerushalmi Barachot. They said, and there are a few sources for the Sephardic Minhag in Yerushalmi Barachot. Um, and then he says, here, Minhag Sephardim, Baljir, Minhag Ashkenaz. And the Minhag of the Sephardim in Algier is like the Minhag of the Ashkenazim. Ayen Bet Yehuda Ayash. Look at the writings of the Bi Yehuda Ayash. Who was Rabbi Yehuda Ayash? Rabbi Yudha Ayash was perhaps the most famous Chacham out of Algeria. Rabbi Yudha Ayash came to Algeria and standardized everything about the Halakhot in Algeria. One standard Kituba, one standard Get, standard contracts between business partners, standard everything, standardized Minhagim, Halakhot. He was an unbelievable influence on Algerian Jewry. I know Jews that follow Algerian traditions. Whatever Rabbi Yehuda Ayash said is what they do in their house until today. Rabbi Ayash, over there, they didn't have a minhag to recite Halel on the nights of Pesach, like the Ashkenazim. By the way, the Yemenite community also didn't have a minhag to recite Halel on the night of Pesach. And there are some writings of Chamo Yosef trying to force the Yemenite community to obviously do this. He tried to make many communities do things the way that that, that halachic approach was. Nonetheless, this is a difference of minhagim between Sevaladim and Ashkenazim. Number six, and I told you these are very random and they're out of order. So why they're all here, I don't know. Sevaladim. Even if on Hanukkah, even if there are many people in one home, Madikim they light only one candle. Meaning one Hanukkiah. Ashkenazim, Kolechad Madik By the Ashkenazim, everybody lights their own Hanukkiah in their own home. This conversation here about Ner Chanukah, it's famous. We've discussed the Chanukah, the Mehadrin, the Mehadrin, Mila Mehadrin. Is that upping the family? Is that upping the individuals? And how many candles do you really have to light every night of Chanukah? When you're adding, what are you adding? This is an old conversation. He writes here in the notes, and I know there are people who don't agree with this assessment of this halakha, but he writes here in footnote 49, he said, and the Taz is a little bewildered why the Sefaradim seem to be following the custom of the Tosafot, and the Ashkenazim seem to be following the custom of the Rambam. And he said, I'll bring you another halakha like this shortly. I would argue that not all Sephardim understand them to not be following the Rambam and following Tosafot instead, but this is a class maybe for Chanukah time when it comes. For right now, practically, I think this is one of the most tangible differences between a Sephardic home and an Ashkenazi home and Chanukah are the amount of Chanukiyot that are lit, in, uh, lit, lit, that are lit inside of a home. 
Now today, are there Sephardim who are lighting more than one Chanukiah? Of course. You send your kids to day school and every kid comes back with a Chanukiah. And every year they come with a new Chanukiah. And what do you want to tell your kid? You're not allowed to light a Chanukiah in my house. You, uh, so it becomes complicated. I'm not going to lie. It becomes complicated. But in an ideal halachic world, Sephardim light one Chanukiah in the home. Mzehu. Nothing more than that. I said in the home. Really, it should be outside of the home. Uh, when we get to Chanukah, we'll talk about Chanukah. The next difference. If we're already talking about candles, Sephardim and Madikim Ner Belel Tisha Ba'av Kinot. The Sephardim don't light a candle, meaning they don't have the lights on for Kinot on Tisha Ba'av. Ashkenazim Madikin, but Ashkenazim do light candles. On footnote 50, Mekor Leminhag Sephardim Katavarosh Bashem. He's bringing a source here. Okay, the, the, he's quoting a Radar, Rabbi David Abudraham, that talks about when we say, that our crown has fallen, the lights get dimmed in the Bedek Knesset. If I'm familiar correctly with the way that the Sephardic and Ashkenazi world are today, that even in Sephardic synagogues, Ashkenazi synagogues, the lights are dimmed, they're not dimmed all the way, you have to still be able to read the keynote. Uh, hopefully these laws are theoretical. We won't have these customs. We won't be having it. This year will be in Yerushalayim already. But in the case that it is that way, there seem to be varying customs about the lights that are used in the Bera Knesset when it comes to uh, Tisha B'Av. This next one is fascinating because it has more to it than what Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin mentions. Chet. Sephardim. B'makom kriyat... In the place where they read the Torah, what's that called? What's the place where you read the Torah? What's it called? Abima or? Ashuchan, okay, or? Anyone here call it a teva? Yeah, also? Okay. Bima, Teva, Shulchan, whatever you want to call it. In the place where they read the Torah, that's also where they lead services from. Ashkenazim, Kriyat HaTorah Bateva, Vatfila, Be'amud HaMiyuchad, Betzad Echal. By the Ashkenazim, they read the Torah at the Bima, but when they lead services, they lead the services from the front of the room. Next to the Aron Kodesh is a separate podium. And the Amud, they call it. And that is where they lead services from. Now, this actually has a halachic reason for it. The halachic reason is very interesting. Uh, those of you who come to my Bera Knesset, so we're a small kihila that is not so fancy. If you go to a Sephardic kihila, and I'm certain that in the videos that I've seen of Spanish-Portuguese kihilots in the United Kingdom, they look this way. But even if you think of the Sephardic synagogues of Tzfat, tell me where the Torah is read from. What does that bima look like? Is it on the ground? Do you take steps to get there? You take steps. It's elevated from the rest of the room. It's like a, like a stage in the middle of the place. You take steps and you go there, correct? Yeah. That's how it is in every Sephardic synagogue you saw in Yerushalayim, also in Sefat, also Maran, uh, Rabbi Yosef, Cairo synagogue. They're up there. That's on top of you almost. They're reading the Torah. So this presents a problem. A problem, let's read, in 51. Tam minhag Ashkenaz. Is because the Talmud says, "Mishum shasur la'amod b'makom gavoha gimel tefachim or yoter kedelit palel." You're not allowed to pray somewhere that is three tefachim high. What is three tefachim high? One, two, three. Higher than that, you shouldn't be praying that high off the ground. Why? Why? What does it say? It's based on a verse in Tehillim. David Melech says, "Mimamachim kiraticha Adonai." I call out to you from the depths. It's actually why originally the minhag was that the teva was down. If you look in the Talmud, what do they say in the Talmud? Yored lifna'a teva. He would go down to the teva. They used to lead services down. There was an idea like this. But definitely not to go high. High is considered arrogant. How can you go up to pray to HaKadosh Baruch Hu? And that's why the Ashkenazim have this minhag. Now, it doesn't solve the problem because in many fancy Ashkenazi communities that I've been to, the podium where the Chazan leads services is just on another stage in front of the Aron Kodesh. Am I correct? 
I mean, there are steps to get up to the, the podium in the front of the room. There's one Ashkenazi synagogue I was in. I want to tell you, it was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I was there randomly in the middle of the Shabbat. And over there, the, they had a, a stage, but the Amud was put down underneath the stage. So he was standing in front of the stage, but not on it, before it. That was unusual. Says Rabbi Shem Dov Gagin, if you can, you have to go down and pray. So what's the reason why Sefaradim allow one to pray on that podium? Because the teva, the platform where the chazan stands, Shaliyah Tzibu stands, is bigger than four amot by four amot. That's already considered its own place, its own platform. And it's permissible to pray there. So let me ask you this question. Are you, let's say you live in an apartment building. Are you allowed to pray on the second floor in your apartment building or do you have to go downstairs to the basement to pray? You're allowed to pray in your apartment, of course. And because this place is its own domain and I'm here praying. The same thing with the Sephardim. The reason why those platforms are so big are because that's their own domain. This is already its own room, so to speak, almost. It's like being in an attic. And because of that, he's allowed to lead services there. Which, in fact, would make problems, because in those Ashkenazi communities where the podium is in the front of the room, and there's a little podium for the chazan, maybe that little platform the chazan is standing on is not big enough to be considered its own domain, and therefore you really solved one problem, but created a different problem. Now, I'll add here that if I recall correctly, there has been much conversation since the time of the Khatam Sofer in Orthodox Ashkenazi synagogues, how to differentiate themselves from Reform Ashkenazi synagogues. And part of that has a lot to do with the ritual side of the Bera Knesset. Where do you lead tefillah from? Where do you read the Haftarah from? Where do you face when you pray? Where do you... So I'll give you an example. I once came to an Ashkenazi synagogue. Why? They asked me to read the Megillah. They had no one to read the Megillah for them. So I came. It was a big audience of people. And the way the room was set up was, it was easier for me to read to them if I was holding the Megillah and facing them. So what did I do? I took the shtender, I turned it around, and I faced them. You would have thought that I brought a ham and cheese sandwich in the middle of Yom Kippurim, and I was going to eat it before I... You, you don't understand what happened over there. A tumult. The elders of the Kira, what do you mean you face over there? The Reformed people face the community, Orthodox people face front, turn around and face the Torah. Unbelievable things. Unbelievable what happens to me. I mean, you needed my help. <laughs> I came to help you, and now I'm reformed. Okay, wonderful. This, this has a lot of... There was a time where Reform Judaism decided to turn the bima around. What's the motivation? I don't know. Turn the bima around. There was a time where they decided to lead services this way or lead them that way, and because of that, that already became a hallmark of... If you remember... Some of those of you who are here on Shavuot, I discussed the organ that was in the community of Algier, in Oran in Algier, and how Rav Kook mentions the reform custom to have an organ in the synagogue. And he said, listen, we don't even know what you're talking about. Maybe where you're from, there's reform thing. We don't know what you're talking about. Where we are, this is something that all the Chachamim have in their Bedaknesset, and it's fine, and nobody, nobody was mitzaftif. Nobody ever chirped about this until you came to make a problem for us. These things are very important. If you notice, in an Ashkenazi synagogue, Kabbalat Shabbat is led from where? The Chazan recites Kabbalat Shabbat standing? The by the Bima. And then when it comes time for Arvit, where does he go? Up. Up, to the front of the room, to the Amud. And when he reads the Torah, where does he stand? On the Bima, facing the own Kodesh. But when he reads the Haftarah, what does he do? On the side, it goes to the side of the bima. All of these things you wouldn't find in a Sephardic kila. And so these are differences about where one stands and where one doesn't stand when you read the tefillah, when you lead the services. And are there exceptions to this? Absolutely. So you may find an Ashkenazi everything happens to be. It could be. He's Rabbi Shemotov again is pointing out general differences. In number 10, I think we'll do two more, we'll call it a day for today. 10. Besimchat Chanukah Upurim. This was eye-opening to me when I got married. But this has a practical difference. If you look in the Shulchan Aruch, he mentions here in footnote 52, in Siman Tafresh Tzadihei and Siman Ein Resh Taf. 
uh, interesting, he doesn't want to write the other way. Okay. In those simanim, in the Shulchan Aruch, Maran discusses whether there is an obligation to have simcha on Chanukah. Do you have to be happy on Chanukah? If you look in the in the Alanisim, look. In the Alanisim and the Sidu. Sorry. It says here. And after all of this war, your children came to your home and they cleared your sanctuary and they purified your mikdash and they lit candles in your holy courtyard and they established these days in Halel, praise, and thanksgiving. And they made, you did miracles and wonders for them, and we give thanks to your great name. So they established, we have to do a few things. We have to say Hallel and give thanks to Hashem. Do we have an obligation to be happy on Chanukah? Which holiday do we, yes, have an obligation to be happy on? Sukkot, very good. What it says, correct? That's an obligation. Now, we maybe extrapolate from there to the other three festivals, fine. But the Chanukah itself doesn't have a separate mitzvah of joy, of happiness. Purim also. Now, maybe Mishnah Chanukah, fine. But in terms of a mitzvah of Purim, it doesn't exist. Now, there are definitely Jews in certain camps that have taken the mitzvah of not being happy very seriously. They're very not happy. That's how their miserable Judaism looks like. There's no mitzvah to be sad on Hanukkah. The question is if there's a legal obligation to rejoice on this holiday or to fulfill the mitzvot of this holiday. Nashkanazim don't agree. By the way, it could be that even the Rambam mentioned Simcha. I have to look again in the laws of Hanukkah there. But what we have a practical difference in the way these holidays are observed. When I got married to my wife, Chanukah and Purim, in my home, in my community, are very happy days. We light candles, we sing songs, we eat some food even maybe. We don't have an obligation to eat meals on Chanukah. But we do it anyways. Uh, Purim is a great day. We read the Megillah, we give Mishlach Manot, we Matanot Evyonim. We, uh, we don't... You do whatever we do. We read everything, all the mitzvot of the day. Even Zecher L'machatzit shekel and all the things that we... We do it fine, okay. But when it comes to... Uh, my wife's family, already a month before Hanukkah, they're preparing and it's a celebrates carnival. It's unbelievable. There's tish and there's meals and there's Yom Tov clothing and the whole thing. Purim also, it's, 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 a, it's a production in its own right. And for a very long time, my wife felt like we had too simple of a Hanukkah experience or too simple of a Purim experience. And I asked, you know, Rosh Chodesh, what does Rosh Chodesh look like to you? Do you make carnivals on Rosh Chodesh and celebrations and wear Yom Tov clothes and don't go to work? Is that what happens for you? <laughs> because Rosh Chodesh is also an important day in the calendar. And so we're not telling you not to be happy, but there are differences in the way that these two holidays are observed, especially as it relates to Simcha. And the last one for today, the last one for today, Sefaradim en mevarchin ala halel bidilug. Sefaradim don't recite a blessing on Halel when it is bedilug, when you skip certain paragraphs. Meaning we call that today a half Halel. We call it half Halel. And Ashkenazim recite a blessing bedilug. Now before you jump on me, don't jump on me yet. Footnote 53. Look what I wrote in the Ketosh Tov. And there I elaborated at length. The Sephardim of London and Amsterdam follow the Ashkenazi custom and they recite the blessing on a half halal. And when Ashkenazim came to live in Tzfat, the Ashkenazim stopped reciting a blessing on half halal in, in the city of Tzfat because they now entered the territory of Maran HaBet Yosef. That was written in the book Shnot Chaim of Rabbi Shlomo Kluger. This conversation about whether or not Sefaradim recite a blessing on a half halal is, is very tricky. It's very complicated. You have to determine what it means to be Sefaradi. You have to determine which Sefaradim, who are you talking about. And I would say that what is familiar to me 
that those Sephardim who follow the Rambam exclusively certainly do not recite a blessing on half halal. Rambam is clear as day as to whether or not you're allowed to recite a blessing on half halal. Maran quotes a number of opinions. And yes, if you wanted to follow the standard procedure in Maran, it seems that he also is saying that it's forbidden to recite a blessing on a half halal. But what can I tell you? That of the tens of thousands, not a thousand, tens of thousands of Chachamim that came out of Morocco, for example, who all recited a blessing on a half halal. And the Chachamim here, based on what Bishan Tov Gagin is telling me, and you can correct me if, he's, if that's not correct, but that in uh, London and Amsterdam, the Sephardim there also recited a blessing on a half halal. That there was a significant chunk of the Sephardic population that recited a blessing on the half halal. That's what they did. And it might tell you that it's a brachala vatala, that it's this, that it's that. I'm not getting involved. That's for a shiur on the laws of, of uh, halal and whether or not you can recite a blessing on something that is min hagnevi'im and not a, That's a good conversation to have. And what do you do if you're in a Knesset and they're Ashkenazim and they say a blessing? Or what do you do if you're Sevaladim and they don't say So that's already a, a complicated question. Really, it's not for me to get into today. But this is one of the differences that in general, the Sevaladim don't say a blessing on the half halal. And Ashkenazim do say a blessing on the half halal. If I could just throw this out there, one last thing about the halal. When Sephardim recite a blessing on the full halal, what is the blessing they recite? I don't know, maybe, maybe by you they say the but what I see, to finish the halal. Sephardim. So, very good. What did Ashkenazim say on a full halal? Likro. to read the halal. Now, when the Sephardim who recite a blessing on the half halal recite a half halal, which blessing do they say? So when the Moroccans recite a blessing on the half halal, which blessing do they say? Likro. Likro the halal. The reason is, you can only say the blessing ligmor the halal if you finish the whole halal. But if you're skipping parts of the halal, then you can't say ligmor. You're not finishing the halal, but ligmor, you're reading halal. The question then is why do Ashkenazim recite the blessing ligmor the halal when they read the whole halal? Why don't they say the blessing ligmor the halal? If I recall my sources correctly, it starts with the Maharam of Rodenberg. And he feels... What happens if you're an Ashkenazi Jew and you're reciting the full halal and you forget a word or you skip a word or you mumble through a word or you miss a letter or something happens, now the blessing that you recited in the halal is a blessing in vain because you missed a word. And so because of that, he instituted this non-Talmudic blessing, which is likuo et halal. Uh, our parents always would tell us that even if there was such a situation, you still wouldn't be violently gemorah the halal. The chazan is saying halal, the commune is saying halal, a lot of people are saying halal. Yeah, okay, let's leave it at that. But for today, we've discussed the first 10 differences that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin gives us between Sephardim and Ashkenazim. And I'm very much looking forward next time to get through uh, at least 10 more of them until we finish this list. I wish you a good evening. I'm here to answer any questions or comments afterwards. Uh, but for right now, for those who need to go, thank you so much for learning with me tonight.